welcome to the Horses and Life podcast. Episode one is finally here. I've actually come to appreciate those of you that were a little impatient and ready to get this going after we put out the teaser episode, uh, episode zero, a while back. We had a good response, people subscribing, some of you haven't let me alone, wondering when episode one will be out. So thank you for that. I'm excited to get things rolling here. List of announcements and some things that I want to go over before we get into the podcast. So everybody kind of knows what's going to be happening, how this is going to be working, at least for a while. I have a list of pre-recorded interviews that I'll be using for the podcast for a while. Some of them will be uh, used early this year. Some of them maybe later in the year. The introductions, however, like right now, this is the introduction for episode one. The introductions will be a little closer to real time, a little closer to the time the episode is published. So for example, the interview we're going to listen to today was done in November, 2018. And today I'm recording this intro. Today's January 5th. So I assume within a few days, maybe within a week, you guys will be able to listen to this. There will be a chance later for some of you to be a part of some live recordings of the podcast, possibly to be there in person, possibly to listen in live on the internet and then be able to call in if interested. So we'll go over some of that later. I'm going to try to get out one episode a month, possibly more, depending on how the months go and how busy I get and how much time I'm allowed to dedicate to the podcast. Make sure you see calmiddleton.com. There'll be a page about the podcast on there with a little more information about it. There'll be episodes of the podcast there also. For those of you that don't do podcasts with a smartphone or something like that, you can just get on the website and listen to it there. The fact that you're listening to this tells me you've already figured that out, but maybe you have some friends that don't use smartphones or don't do podcasts, so you can just let them know to go to the website and it'll all be right there. While they're on the website, make sure they put their email address in. And if you haven't, put your email address in to my subscription for my newsletter. Every month I send out a newsletter and make sure that you get it so you know what's going on. You know, the podcast is not here in order to sell you anything specific. There may be some times when I tell you about a live event or I tell you about a clinic that I have coming up, or I might have a guest that tells you about something they have coming up or directs you to their website or something that they do, but the point is not necessarily to sell anything to you directly. Which brings me to my next point. I've made a commitment, at least for 2019, to keep the podcast 100% advertisement free. There's nothing wrong with advertising in general, but I'm sure some of you know what I mean when I tell you that I've been listening to radios, I've been listening to podcasts, I've been listening to things online, watching a video online, maybe trying to read something online, when I am constantly interrupted, constantly bombarded with people or things trying to get me to buy this or check out that or order something or click here or go there or go see so-and-so or tell them that I sent you or call this place, and I'm trying to save you all from that, at least for now. I don't know what 2020 will bring. There may be a point where I decide that a few advertisers is the way to go, but for now, I'm trying to avoid that. So in order for me to avoid that, I have to figure out a way to help fund the podcast. As you can imagine, the equipment that I'm using did not come for free. The people that I 
hire to help me with some editing and some publishing and help me learn this process of podcasting. None of those people work for free. The uh, hosting and the equipment that is uh, necessary each time I do something adds up. So what I've done is I've opened up a Patreon account and Patreon is a place where you can go to make a contribution financially if you're interested. It's 100% optional. It is nothing that is required for you to listen to the podcast, but it is greatly appreciated. If you're so inclined and it fits into your budget, I would ask you to please make a contribution at patreon.com and you can find more information about my podcast there. If it does not fit into your budget and you are not so inclined, you are welcome to listen to the podcast for free anyway. So, moving on from that. It made sense to have as my first guest on the podcast, Bud Rowe. As most of you probably are aware of by now, the name of the podcast is Horses and Life. And that is a direct connection to the book that Bud and I put together. I met Bud and his wife, Betsy, a few years ago in Shawnee, Kansas. And I went to a clinic there. Afterwards, he walked up and he said, hey, I appreciate you helping us with our horses. And I really enjoyed it. Do you have a book for sale? I'd like to buy one. And I said, no, I don't have a book, but I've been working on one a little bit. I've put a few things together here and there, and I've kind of put it in the back of my mind for a while. A few days later, he came up, brought his horse up to ride a little bit with me and said, do you have that book done yet? And I said, no, no, I don't. And he said, well, let's put it together. I'd like to help you. And I said, okay. So he did. And he helped walk me through the authorship process and did a great job and, and it helped me get a lot of good information out there that I was able to uh, pass through. So Bud has a office in Lenexa, Kansas and Los Angeles, California. And he's been helping people with their medical issues for 49 years. Uh, his specialties include sleep medicine, neurology, and psychiatry. I, uh, I'm going to read you just a quick I'm going to skim through a quick bio that is online. I didn't want to have to read all this in front of him, but I wanted to give you guys a little more information about him because we didn't get into too much of that during the interview. Vernon Rowe, MD. Before founding the Institute, the which is the Rowe Neurology Institute, by the way, in 1982, Dr. Vernon D. Rowe earned his BS and MD degrees at Duke University. Served his internship at Harborview Hospital in Seattle. Obtained his neurology residency training at Johns Hopkins in Baltimore. Rowe then served as a research associate at the National Institutes of Health and Developmental Neurobiology. Rowe next joined the faculty of the University of Kansas Medical School at the Department of Neurology as an associate professor. At KU, he taught and mentored medical students and residents and carried out research on neuron target interactions. Funded by grants from the National Institutes of Health, the Veterans Administration, and the March of Dimes Foundation. He's the author of numerous research publications. He's currently an adjunct professor of neurology at the University of Kansas Medical School. In addition to his work as a physician and researcher, Rowe has many skills and interests. He's a pilot, and for many years he flew in small planes and helicopters to several rural towns in Missouri and Kansas to hold neurology clinics. He's an accomplished bluegrass musician and songwriter and has published a book of poetry. Published a couple other books also. This is me now that I'm done reading that. And uh, one of the books I actually appreciated quite often was the book that he uh, wrote about some of those stories of him flying a helicopter to some of those little towns in rural America in Missouri and Kansas. So anyway, here it is. I hope you enjoy it. I bring you Bud Rowe. 
Okay, thank you guys for listening. Here we are with Bud Rowe, my friend and uh, co-author of my book, uh, Cal Middleton on Horses and Life. And we're going to talk a little bit today about a lot of different things. I'm just super excited to be here with with him and his wife, Betsy, and we're here in Shawnee, Kansas. And we're just going to talk a little bit about some different things that, that kind of come up. I know there's a few things in the book, but if I, if I let you talk a little bit about it, one of the things that people have asked me about a little bit, we mentioned in there, the pieces of the brain that are active or, or working, maybe is the way to say it, whenever you are really in tune with your horse are some of the same pieces or the same parts of the brain that we use during Zen meditation. And I've had a few people kind of ask me about that. Well, how did you relate those things they said to me? So, you know, maybe tell us a little bit about that, and then we'll, we'll kind of get into some more things later, if you would. Okay. While we're sitting around here around this table that we spent so many hours talking the concepts about, ironing out, you're teaching me a lot of stuff. Yeah, so just in a very broad, with a very broad brush. And honestly, we're just learning this, the functionality of the brain as, as time goes on. They new... New stuff has been learned all the time about just because of functional MRI and then the next generation of functional MRI and the, the things that we can learn. But basically, um, when we're paying attention to stuff, there's a particular part of, of our brains that pays attention to everything. We got information coming in from the left side, the right side, in front of us, behind us. And that information uh, comes in through the five senses that we, that we know about and probably some that we don't even know about. This is not woo-woo stuff, but this is just, we don't know all the receptors we have as human beings. But that information gets filtered. It gets filtered through a place called the ventral attentional system. And that is in the, uh, in the side of the brain that, that is more, more synthesizes everything. But, but it's in the non, what you call the non-dominant temporal parietal occipital junction. I don't want to go into this too much in detail, but it's the right side of the brain lower down. And then that information, the attention that you spend is shuttled up to detail type of attention that we pay. And that is to the the right side of the brain in the what's called the dorsal attentional system pays attention to the left side of the body and what's going on the left side of the visual field the left side of the body left side of space and sound and everything the left side of the brain and in the dorsal attentional system pays attention to the right side but it all has to be filtered through this ventral attentional system that's getting more complicated as it days roll on but that's a good way of thinking about this thing and so zen meditators and also probably the function of prayer, but also the function of awareness is involves this ventral attentional system. It actually is paying attention to things outside yourself. And I think that is what, and we know that from functional MRI and from meditators, I think that is the part of the brain that's really highly engaged when you're interacting with with horses because they're a completely different creature. You know, prey animals, they don't have the kind of crossovers that we have as human beings. They don't have the kind of, they don't have the kind of nervous system. They were expecting to be eaten at any moment. Right, <laughs> yeah. right, right, right. Our, yeah, that's, that's something that 
I end up saying to people a lot things like, you know, the horse is, you know, he's just trying to survive. He's just trying to figure out what he has to do to not be eaten. And kind of people kind of get a laugh out of that sometimes because in, in the human's head, in the human's mind, a lot of times people are, are saying things, well, this horse knows it's not going to get eaten. I mean, it's not, it's just been hanging out in my pasture all the time. Well, okay, I understand what the human means there, but basically from the horse's point of view, it, it doesn't know. And, and the horse doesn't know that it could be eaten. They don't have that level of intelligence that they understand what that really means. But everything in their instincts is always telling them, be prepared, be safe, get ready to do this or get ready to go here, get ready to move. Don't, don't let your guard down. Don't give in to what you might feel. Which kind of brings me into a lot of the other pieces that, that we, you know, talked about, of course, in the book and what I try to teach, you know, for a living is, is that feel and that, that feel is from the human point of view, we're, we're talking about doing enough to get the horse to respond, but not too much to get the horse defensive. And that is a, is a very fine line at times when the horse feels something, anything, maybe he's a baby. I worked with some, some yearlings yesterday and some winglings where, you know, we put maybe rope them in the round pin or something for the first day. And then they have feel a rope around their neck for the first time. And of course they're going to fight against it. And the, the key there is to do just enough to help them learn to give to the feel of that without getting them bracy or defensive or not pulling on them in a way to say, oh, now he's going to pull back. Well, of course he's going to pull back because in his mind, anything that he feels is going to be something that he is going to have to fight against to survive. So in a way, we, we joked about the title of the book and maybe my next book would be Unnatural Horsemanship because in a way, everything we do with the horse is very unnatural as far as we're going against their natural instincts, which is to always brace against what they feel and never give in. And we're always trying to think about getting the horse to give in. But it's very interesting that, like you said, it was very interesting to me when you and I talked about it a lot when we were putting this book together about what the human has to go through in their mind and their brain to be able to get to that spot mentally. So then they can kind of become vulnerable enough to trust the horse. And then only then can the horse reciprocate that. And, and kind of bring that back. So yeah, that's, that's really interesting stuff, but it's been, it's been a question that I've had from quite a few people, you know, that might kind of read through the book and of all the things in there, that's one thing that seems to be kind of catch some people's eyes. So it's really interesting. Yeah, there's a couple of books here we have out that you were just telling me about. Why don't you tell us a little bit about some of the stuff that. Oh that, yeah. Jim Austin, just, just to kind of piggyback on that just for a second. Yeah, go ahead. Uh, so when a horse feels something, all of a sudden it's going to act feel something, it's going to act. When humans feel something, it's kind of like uh, Jonathan Haidt says in his book, The Happiness Hypothesis. It's uh, kind of like um, the rider and the elephant. The elephant, in the analogy of the horse, is the emotional drivers for stuff. Emotional drivers that actually takes us places, limbic system, all the hardwired responses. The rider a lot of times acts as the press agent and just explains what the elephant does because it does what it wants to do. But humans have what the horse does not have, and that's a big old cortex that then can analyze whether or not the response is appropriate and modulate that, that response. That's what they do in cognitive behavioral therapy all the time. They say, okay, well, you, you, feel, you feel this way, you don't necessarily feel it. It's like getting angry with your horse who's just trying to save his life. So you actually, as a human, use that 
cortex part of your brain to say, no, this animal is just trying to save his life. So how am I going to modulate what my behavior, automatic behavior would be to actually get in touch with this horse and activate my uh, subconscious, if you will, it's an overused term, but to actually be able to feel what this horse is feeling and yet bring my human knowledge to bear on top of that's that's what i've seen so much you do in horses and stuff like that this this guy um jim austin is a hardwiring neurologist he was a guy who figured out that a particular molecule accumulates this was way way back in white blood cells of of patients who have a degenerative neurologic disease i can bore you with the with the lingo there but basically this was a major advance in neurology. And then this guy in his 50s has has some sort of Zen experience. The Zen guys call us uh, Satori. But basically, he was on a train station in Tokyo when he realized, he suddenly realized everything around him. He knew he was able to to actually pay attention to every little thing that was going on around him. And that's the first time I think it ever happened to him and his in his life. And so he's, he spent the rest of his life, the next 35, 40 years, trying to figure that out. So he's written a bunch of, you know, several books. They're all MIT press books. Very uh, cool. Zen in the Brain, then Zen Brain Reflections, and Zen Brain Horizons. He's a hardwired neurologist kind of guy. Sure, I mean, sure. he went down and he's plumbed the depths of what functional MRI can tell you about that. That's where the dorsal and ventral attentional systems came out. Really smart, really smart guy. You know, there's there's so many things that the more I talk with you, and of course, one of the reasons I wanted to get you on the podcast, besides I thought it'd be interesting to, to, for people to kind of get a chance to hear or or, or meet in a way, um, the guy that they've heard a little bit about or maybe read some of your work, of course, in my book too, besides just trying to introduce you to some of the people that I know that you haven't got to meet yet. Also, there's so many conversations that you and I have that Sometimes it's not a conversation. It's just you you going through things and me listening and trying to learn. But there's so many things that you go over that I feel like, how come other people don't know this? I mean, obviously, you know, you can tell us a little bit about your background. I mean, and what, what you do for a living. So there is a reason you should know this. But there are other things that I feel like have been around for a long time. And I feel like so many people... Um, myself included, you know, and of course we do different things for a living and sometimes you get interested in things and sometimes you don't, but there are a lot of things that they're not necessarily new. Some of them, like you just mentioned, it was way back, but there's things that are, are maybe they never really hit the, the mainstream to where the average Joe doesn't really know a lot about it. And I think some of those things that, that I have learned from you or some of the things you've mentioned about the way the brain works and just, just the way, the way our bodies work in general, maybe not just interesting, but I think it can be almost impactful. I think it can be important for us to really understand, even if it's not in a very directly relatable way, just going about your day to day, the guy that, the guy that digs the ditches or the guy that rides horses or the guy that does this or does that for a living. To me, the more you understand about how you work then the more success you can have and the more you can understand what's going on and maybe the more maybe happiness is a way to say it or maybe just, you know, the more at peace you can kind of find, you know. Is that something that you kind of feel a little bit similar about or kind of tell me what you think about just average people trying to understand some of these concepts? 
Yeah, yeah, life is uh, old Robert Frost. Uh, you were, we were talking before about who would you, who would you talk with? Uh, one of the guys would be Robert Frost because he he is an amazing, amazing poet. But he he had a poem, uh, Two Tramps in Mud Time," and basically it had to do with uh, this guy who liked to chop wood. And these two guys came along and said, "Hey, look, that's our job to chop wood." And he said, "No, I mean I like to do this. I'm chopping wood because I like to do it." And he said that, that his goal in life was to unite his vocation and his avocation. His two eyes make one insight. Frost had a way of, of saying stuff that was amazing, right? But we've got two eyes, but we only we perceive one vision, right? So doing what you love is just a gift. And I do that. I'm, I'm just challenged and rewarded every day. I mean, I, I'm just amazed that I can actually do this. I, I learn from everybody. I, I'm in a situation where I try to figure out what's bothering folks and from a neurologist standpoint. And you can just do that all day long. And, and people tell you learn new stuff from every single person. It doesn't matter what they do for a living. That's, that's almost like a uh, so that's not completely secondary, but it's almost secondary because we're all human beings trying to learn stuff on the planet and trying to exist and trying to um, survive in a hostile world where people are shooting at each other and maybe we have a gift here in the in our our country, the United States, where even though there's a even there's a lot of press about it, you know, you can go to the you can go to work or you can go to the grocery store. Somebody's not going try to shoot you and that's not present in so much of the rest of the world that's just trying to figure out how the brain works interact with people and i'm learning every day i learn from people every day that's what i know about what i do but that applies to every person on the planet right i mean every person on the planet can learn from every other person right because everybody's unique and nobody has the same exact set of experiences mm -hmm. it's something we might have mentioned a little bit before but everybody has a story you know and maybe some have a few stories but what i mean is maybe each person's life is a story and their that that's their story in a way or, or their their set of experiences and you know i something that i really enjoy and that's part of the you know birth of this podcast for me is just trying to share those stories that i've you know, been able to be maybe impacted by or been able to be benefited from, you know, people like you guys and, and other people that I've met along the way that I think, man, this is, this is cool stuff. And I want other people to hear the same story and maybe they can kind of hear some similar things. I know for me, the more people I meet, I feel like, you know, maybe if they all have a story, they all have maybe the analogy of their, their life being a book. And, you know, I feel like I can take a page off of their life. You know, I can take a page out of their book and take it with me. Whatever maybe mistakes they've made, whatever experiences they've had, maybe I can learn a little bit from that and not maybe have to make those exact same mistakes because I can kind of see what they did. And then vice versa. I feel like it's my job to do the same thing as I go on, you know. So tell us a little bit about you. Of course, you know, in my intro, I just kind of mentioned uh, real quick kind of what you do. But tell us a little bit about what, what you guys are doing now and kind of where you're at. I know right now this is a kind of a transition period for you guys, and I've known you through a few changes. And when I first met you, you were mostly working here in Shawnee, or actually over in Lenexa, Kansas. Tell us a little bit about what you have going on now with your business and what you guys are up to. We see patients, uh, neurology kind of patients with headache and, and problems with memory. 
all different kinds of problems with pain. Uh, but we, and multiple sclerosis, but we try to bring clinical research to a solution for improvement of the quality of life of those people, those patients who come in to see us and sleep problems. But human beings are only are one organism on the planet, so the whole, whole, every aspect of their body is is connected. So sleep's connected to headaches, connected to neck pain, is connected to motions, connected to the way you move your your body during the day. I mean, it's it's all connected. So we try to improve people's quality of life by that one I, I always ask a person something something that uh, I learned from a really senior neurologist many years ago and I, I phrased it a little bit different and I say oh, oh look if I'm a magician and I can get rid of one thing for you one symptom but I can for sure do that but I can't do anything else what is that one symptom going to be you know, you do the same thing with horses. I've, I've seen you so sure, many times. Sure, you do the exact yeah. same with horses. Uh, no, well, I heard everywhere. No, no, I want to know one thing, one place. Take a finger point, and, and then you know that if you can help them with that one thing, you can improve their quality of life. Then, then I put them, and um, you know, we try to pigeonhole people, even though they don't fit neatly into pigeonholes. Everybody's different, but we discovered this well, the connections with us with hypermobility and the fact that some people just have more, much more flexible joints than other people. That that's a big deal. And what we want to do is, since that that Ehlers-Danlos syndrome hypermobility was just reclassified last year by mostly genetics, the most common form of that that really impacts people's lives is not the genetics aren't known. It, it, it's you know 13 different types of this, but there's one that where the gen, the actual gene has not been described. We know it travels in families, and this makes people miserable, problems with sleep, problems with blood pressure regulation, problems with headache, and all that kind of thing. So, and we need to know the molecular basis of that. So we have set up a laboratory at, across from the University of Kansas Medical Center, and so we're starting that. We want to get to the molecular basis of that of that particular disorder. Why, what turns a person with athletic gifts and who's hypermobile to begin with into a patient with these concerns? Mm -hmm. And so, sure. and we know from published literature just recently that there is a little, that there's, it's gotta be uh, one or two molecules that's secreted by their connective tissue. And so we wanna find out what that is so we can treat that. You bet. One thing. You bet. We need to find a cure for Alzheimer's disease and the front of temporal lobar degenerations are just taking down so many people. I mean, they're just, those are the things. So, and then we found a way to make contrast safe for the kidney. And then that will, we had some worldwide patents on that and that's going to be commercialized through actually going to human trials this, the first quarter of next year. A lot of stuff. And then there's writing and I discovered another writer. You know, I discovered, discovered you and say, hey, look, man, I, you're a guy who knows so much about horses and you try to verbalize it. So many people who know a lot about horses and are horsemanship kind of people don't, have never tried to really verbalize sure. it. Sure. Still yeah. seeking. Mm -hmm. So, so this little, we found a, a poet in, um, in Boston, a really great poet. And she'd never been, you know, discovered, never had a book of anything. So we're going to, that's our next project to 
put her stuff out there. Put it out there. And life was very full. <laughs> Working with that person with Betsy is an amazing gift and stuff like that. You know, it's just busy every day. So much happening. Yeah. And one of the things that you, you mentioned in there, you know, you were just talking about the improving the quality of life and kind of fixing, you know, maybe fixing isn't the right word, but trying to help them with, with one symptom. And of course, not to put words in your mouth, but I know we've had this conversation before. The key is that one symptom, we have to remember that it is a symptom of the problem. It's not the problem. And and in the horse thing, I don't know how many times you guys have been around it with me or other people too. It's, it's, you know, well, my horse, you know, what's the problem with your horse? Well, he bucks. No, no, no. I said, what's the problem with your horse? Well, he bucks. And it's like, no, no, no. That's the symptom of the problem. Oh, well, what do you mean? I'm like, well, what happens before he bucks? And they say, well, nothing. He just out of the, no, 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 There's not nothing before he bucks. There's something. And the key is getting people to understand what happens before what happens happens. Right. And so, and that's maybe the timing factor is, is a little different than what you do, but that's, that's where you and I have been able to have a lot of really, really cool conversations because, you know, the first time I came into your office, for example, and that's, that's part of the, part of the way we got to visit more is I, I came to see you uh, professionally, of course. And, you know, you kind of went through me and my back and some things that were happening. And all of a sudden it was like, you know, you were noticing all of these things and mentioned, okay, you walk a little bit like this. So that did that. And then you got, okay, this shoulder does this and your scapula tilts here. And this, and it's like, oh, wow, you know, you're noticing everything, you know, and, and of course, that's what, what we try to do with the horses. And that's what we wrote the book about. It's, it's horses and life, but it's, it's everything included, you know, with, with each horse, even if somebody has a horse problem, it's not about the horse. Of course, it's about the human in a way, but it's about how they communicate back and forth. And I know that a lot of the things that, that you're doing is looking at that person as a whole you know and i think that's really important and of course you can speak to that more in the medical sense of what's happening out there today but it seems like we end up chasing symptoms often right you know i don't go to the doctor a lot if i don't need to of course but i mean i know good doctors can help you obviously but i it's not like i every time i every day i don't think oh i should go to the doctor for this or that i'm kind of more the type that doesn't go with probably as much as i should sometimes but I do know that when I go in, I'm not interested in getting getting my nose to stop running. That's not really not the, the point, right? It's it's kind of what's causing all that. So that's interesting stuff to me, and I think it's just getting uh, getting deeper all the time. Do you see kind of a trend for improvement that way in the medical industry today? Maybe that's a pretty broad question, you know. No, that's a yeah, no, that's a great question. I I could bore you for hours about. Yeah, it's okay. You know, having been political and, and that kind of stuff, I. I'm still, we have some contributions to make, and hey, and dragging along an entire industry with you, I just don't have the energy for that. I just enjoy, but but you know, along those lines, and you and you describe your interaction with me, I learned a lot of that stuff from from just not just from years of experience, but from dealing with horses. I mean, I think horses can teach you a huge amount. In your behavior with the horses, and you're trying to develop this, your senses uh, with the horses about how to actually perceive or how to um, interact with, and I don't want to say analyze because it's not analyzed, but it's more of a perception, perception of a whole patient or the whole situation, the whole animal. I, uh, and it's got to, it's got to always be horses. I've, I've had, you know, dogs and been around cats and all that kind of stuff. Those are, 
those are predator animals, but interaction with the horse is just real different. And it's taught, it's taught me a lot of this perception kind of stuff. Sure, sure. Yeah, that's that's interesting stuff. I know I've been able to put some of the same principles to use, and we we talked about it a little bit, of course, in the book. But there for a while, I, I took a little time away from the riding, and I, I spent time working for a company in Kansas City that works with behavioral uh, issues with children. And I worked uh, mostly with one little girl for the first year, the entire school year, pretty much. I started the first day of school, and I went through the whole year. And I, I would meet him at the daycare, ride the bus to school with her, and then I would be there all day and then ride the bus back to the daycare, and then my day was done. But I was one-on-one behavior implementer the entire day. Then the next year, I did some general consulting with her and some other children as well. And then, you know, still to this day, now and then I may get an email or something about, you know, doing a little help or work here or there. And then with the next couple of years, I worked in some different schools in the Kansas City area mostly and did some some work there. I really enjoyed that. And, and a lot of the same principles will go, you know, what, what we talk about, the way you look at a patient, the way I look at a horse, the way I look at, at a child who, who is uh, maybe struggling in school or with the behavior or whatever the, the issue might be there. It's the whole approach. You know, it's not the deal. I mean, it's like, you know, the sometimes the teacher might have a complaint that, you know, the, the child is banging the door. You know, maybe it's, you know, the, the, they ask this as a, maybe a seven, eight-year-old child in there. The teacher says, okay, we need to go to this, you know, go to the art class for today. And, and the, the child starts taking the door to the classroom and just banging it and just slamming it shut and just bam, 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 bam. And the teacher's complaint is, or maybe they, their uh, consensus is, well, the child needs to stop banging the door. Well, okay, so we, we can get the child to stop banging the door. You know, we can we can change the door hinges. We can make it so she can't slam it. We can, you know, I can block her. I mean, I'm bigger than her. I can. I, mean, I might get my feet stepped on a little bit or bit or something, but I can kind of block her from slamming the door. Then she's going to figure out something else to do. Right. So it's not the door. It's what's going on underneath that. Right. So that's kind of what we work on with the horses. And I know that's kind of how, how we kind of go about a lot of things. So that's why we call it horses in life. And of course, some of the people that I've learned from, they kind of talk about the same thing, you know, all the stuff that's in the book there, the horse stuff, things that I do for a living. It's not that I just woke up one day and boom, there it all was in front of me. Same with you. You know, you've had a lot of ideas over the years. You learned from some great people, I would assume. I know you've told me a little bit about some of them. I did too on the horse side of it, but some of my, some of my uh, crossovers into other things is really what helped me. I think a lot. I think I don't think I would have figured out as much about the horses if not for working with some of the children. Of course, in a way, you can say, well, you had success working with the children because of what you already understood about horses. Well, sure, but I think as I crossed over and then I crossed back and then I tried to learn about this and I tried to learn about that, and in those crossovers, in those those differences that you do, I think that's really you know kind of that diversity is really what something that I've I've kind of gained from. And I know just knowing you, you've done a lot of a lot of different things. I don't know how many. I guess we can call some of them hobbies or some of them interests or whatever. I don't know how many you've had over the years. I, I know a few of them. Of course, one of them is how we met through the horses. But you know, I know you've had a lot of those different things, and I, I have to think that some of those all had a hand in that. And it seems to me like any what I would call great people, very few of them just do one thing. You know, the people that are great at something are are at least good at a lot of other things too, and maybe even great. Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I'm not, I'm not great. I'm just a, I was a guy, you know. Just a I mean, guy. I'm just just a guy. still looking Better than like everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. The, the interesting point is, that, so you know, kids with with Aspergers or who are on the autism spectrum, right, don't have the filters. I don't seem to have the filters that other kids have. 
and horses don't have any filters. And those kids get along with horses. They get they have tremendous relationships with horses, and horses can break through to the to them, and they can break through the horses uh, no the when nobody else can. So I think part of you know the crossover stuff that you're talking about is is uh, makes a huge amount of sense. As a matter of fact, it, it makes a huge amount of sense in terms of you know sometimes uh, pathology of the or what we call it pathology of the problems with the relationships teaches more about teaches more about about how we form relationships and what gets in the way of relationships and how we can actually engineer around those barriers and difficulties so that we can communicate like with kids on the spectrum or with horses and stuff like that. It's a really interesting analogy. Yeah, yeah, it's good. Very good. If you don't mind, tell us a little bit about some of your your work in in the writing and the the publishing that you kind of did. Of course, you guys published my book through World, through Whirly Bird Press and uh, got it printed up. And you know, I, I know you have a good friend out in Arizona that we've talked about through some poetry. And I know you've you've written before. And of course, I read one of your books before you and I put this one together and uh, some poetry. Tell us a little bit about some of the work that you've done there. And that's I mean, that's one of the things that we were talking about as far as the diversity. That's one of the things that you've you've done some work in also. Well, I can tell you how I kind of got into it in the second part, let's say, of my life. I was, I got, I was taking this master's class down at UMKC with a really great writer. His name was David Ray, who was a professor there. He's one, he's the only guy who's won the Poetry Society of America, William Carlos Williams. William Carlos Williams was a doctor. So it was Chekhov. So were some other really great writers. There were there were docs, and they had they brought a richness of experience, maybe you know that everybody could bring, but the human interaction they brought to their writing and descriptions. Anyway, so I was taking this master's class, and they said, "Look, you ought to." Went around the room at the end of the last last day of the class. We met in his living room. We said, "Hey, look. So each one of you is going to have to set up his own publishing company." And actually, there were only guys in this class. His wife was a, was a really wonderful writer, and she's his editor, and she edited our book and everything. But So we went around the room and said, you're going to have to set up your own publishing company because you're going to have a vision of where you want to go that will not mesh with you know the powers that be, the biz part of publishing, Very and the vision. And you, so, so we came around, so I was a helicopter I flew a helicopter at that time, had some tough helicopter hours, let me put it that way. Sure, sure. And so I said, okay, all right, Whirlybird Press. That's how we started Whirlybird Press. And, and so the vision of Whirlybird Press is to is to bring to the four writers who might not other otherwise just fit into the the mold. Mm-hmm. The mold. And yeah. help develop them and help them reach beyond themselves into a wider audience and so you know we're we're a small press you know we we're very picky about what we publish i'm really proud of your of your book here i mean it's a it's an amazing book we put together the whirly bird anthology of kansas city writers ernest hemingway we got permission to publish much of his poetry in that when we put together a second edition i mean really fine writers that have lived around kansas city area one or two of your pieces will be in there. 
Yeah. And the yeah. next one. Yeah, I'm sure of that. Well, I don't know if I've told you this. I've actually been working. Well, I didn't work on it real real hard and long, but I I, uh, I put a poem together. Oh, cool. And uh, it's, it's really cool. And it's a little lengthy. And I, what I'm going to do is I would like to put that maybe on one of the podcast episodes coming up soon. And oh, yeah. maybe I'd read it for people so they can kind of hear my my thoughts on the influx and kind of how, how it goes. But yeah, it's kind of interesting. And, and I think some of it probably has a few of the little lines in there that, that you and I have talked about. And I'm proud of the book as well, of course, and was just happy that, that you were able to help me with it as well. And I know that there's some lines in there that every now and then I had a, a friend of mine that's written with me a lot. She's kind of helped me out different ways. And and she mentioned the other day, she said, you know, I just I just noticed something that there was a kind of a quote at the end of one of the the uh, chapters. I, we basically put a quote at the end of each chapter. One of them was after the groundwork chapter. And instead of a quote, we just put something real simple at the bottom of the groundwork chapter. And it said, I'll probably botch it now, but basically what it said was, it was the definition of groundwork. And I just had the groundwork and a dash and it said, something upon which progress is based. And then underneath that, it's from the Merriam-Webster's Children's Dictionary. And there was a lot of things in the book that I really enjoyed putting little subtle things in there that were probably maybe even uh, in a way too subtle, but it was just where it was, it was deeper than you might think if you just read it and scan it and move on. Because the fact that I'm, what we're trying to say is the groundwork chapter at the end of it in a child's dictionary, it tries to tell you what groundwork should be something upon which progress is based. So of course with, with the horses, that to me is, you know, if, you don't have to ride. Not everybody rides. Some people just enjoy the horse on the ground. But in general, for the people that are riding, the groundwork should not only relate to the riding, but it should be what the riding is based on and vice versa. So just putting it in there. And by the way, this is in the children's dictionary. You know, I, I enjoy that. So the the poem I've been working on is is pretty much every line or two. There's something in there that I think you could really extrapolate from and, and really have a lot of a lot of depth there in the lines and it doesn't mean it's anything profound it's just something interesting and something yeah, fun that yeah, i did yeah. you know you spend time on airplanes and you have you have time so you, you ride a little bit or you're you know you're out riding on your own a little bit and uh, you have time to think about things like that so i enjoy that and i know that uh, yeah so that that's really interesting a lot of stuff on the kansas city uh, anthology is is non is non-poetry it's a short creative amazing fiction part of the rules where it has to be less than a thousand words just send you your best and we'd send out we ended up with a huge stack of things but some of, some of your stuff in there is just that you wrote in this book is absolutely absolutely fit really well and i'm looking forward to looking at the at the poem poems are hard man hard they're really hard to write but they're cool yeah it's kind of fun you know when I was young, I enjoyed uh, writing poetry, you know, just middle school and, and younger even. I remember uh, uh, fifth grade, we had some, we had a little poetry section and we, we were supposed to write some poems, you know, and I always enjoyed that a little bit. And I'm kind of a music guy. I know you are too. We've, we've shared, yeah. we, we had a trip all the way to the panhandle of Oklahoma one time, right. you and I and Betsy, and, and we listened to, you know, uh, what would happen is they'd, they'd play one of their songs and I'd play one of mine. They'd right. play one of their the whole way and I, we had a blast. And there was a lot of a lot of different stuff and a lot of that different different genres of music, but all had a very similar 
feel to them, you know, even though they might've been a different, a different idea, something, something deep in there, at least something that was kind of meaningful, I feel like. And, and then something that was just kind of funny and silly. That's where I learned that you were, that you were a performer, that you're a heck of a singer. And that's how, you <laughs> know, sing, you, singing in the you car got through college back. like that. I mean, they I, really wanted, they wanted you bad because you were such a performer. I mean, you were a star, man. Yeah. That's, that's funny. You mentioned that, you know, not everybody knows that, but now it's on the podcast. Now so it's on the podcast. Here, you know, everybody deserves you know, to know that. Yeah, no, mm-hmm. I actually got through college uh, on a choir and theater scholarship for most of it, yeah. you know, in my, my junior college for sure. And then I went on to senior college after that and got a bachelor's degree. But and when I got my associate's degree, I spent two years on choir and theater scholarship and I was an ag major in a, in a junior college in Oklahoma, which was uh, not really probably real popular for the ag majors to be starring in the musical theater departments, but it kind of worked out and, you know, kind of helped me get through there. So yeah, that's really interesting. What was the most fun production that you were a part of? I'll just turn you know, this on his head yeah, just a little bit. Turn it, turn it around. It's okay. I'm supposed to be asking the questions. You know, I, know, I know, no, no, I know. I'm just teasing. You know, honestly, we had a lot of fun. We we did uh, we did guys and dolls, and we did Hello Dolly, and the guys and dolls was a lot of fun. We had a lot of the guys that I I went to college with down there. I didn't haven't really kept kept up with them. I don't really know what they're all doing, but. A lot of those guys were theater majors and they were, I mean, it seemed to me like they were all destined to be actors or comedians or, or something. And so every now and then I kind of think about looking them up and I see that some of them have gone on and had some success. And so, yeah, cool. that was a lot of fun down there. And we, we had a, we had a good time and I was back and forth at that time. It seemed like every weekend going back to grandpa's farm in central Missouri. And I was, I'd be driving about four hours back. It seemed like every weekend we'd have, you know, cattle to wean and, and different things going on there and hay to put up and, I spent most of the summer down there at grandpa's and my grandfather actually had, had passed away the week that I started college and I went ahead and went. I didn't really, I wasn't real sure if I wanted to go to college at the time. And, and of course I ended up, um, you know, I'm glad I did in a lot of ways because kind of like we were talking about the diversity and the crossover of different things. I mean, it's, it's not so much that I use my degree in a way of saying, here's my degree and then I need a job type of thing. That wasn't, hasn't really been my plan through life, but just the experiences you have and and the the people you meet and the different things. And a lot of this, what I do now for a living in a way I was introduced to it in college. I didn't really know about horse training or working with horses for a living. I didn't really know much of that existed. I was at grandpa's farm and, and we would, you know, gather, you know, cattle up and we'd use the horses for that. And grandpa had a a really cool history. Our our family does of of horses and, and kind of raising some saddlebred horses from, from Missouri area. And I always enjoyed the horses and working with young ones, but I didn't really know that there was a whole industry based on working with horses, you know, so, and people made a living in that. So, but if it wasn't for me going to college, I don't know, I might've came about it somehow, some way, because I was still interested in that, but, but uh, just the different people you meet, it's pretty, pretty interesting stuff, but yeah, it's good stuff. Well, listen, we just got a minute or so here and we'll kind of wrap up. So you know, is there anything that, you know, you mentioned, and of course I mentioned earlier about, you know, if there's, if there's interesting people, somebody you might want to have dinner with or have a conversation with, and you mentioned Robert Frost, you know, is there anything else that kind of our closing podcast, and hopefully I'll get you on here again sometime, because I feel like we just tipped the, just tipped the scales here to start talking about some really good stuff. Is there anything else that you want to leave people with or something that you kind of feel like is, is something that's important, whether it's other, other people to kind of look up, maybe people to read about, maybe things that people can go to, or as we sign off, there, there has to be, uh, uh, some, some kind of closing, uh, thoughts that maybe you have that you can kind of say, you know, keep up the good work. And this is something that, that you've kind of learned over your career and your life that you can kind of share as we, as we leave. There's a lot of intelligence out there 
So intelligence is not the not the main thing. How you do on standardized tests and stuff like that, and it's not really the facade of stuff. But it's it's more you're just having the courage and the um, the perseverance to just stick it out and keep with something, and basically keep trying to learn. I mean, I know that's the most important thing. Just just never give up. Never ever ever give up learning and being willing to be challenged and be open to new ideas and new ways of thinking. Just never, ever give up. That's the most important thing I would say to anybody. You know, friends, patients, me. I have to tell myself that, hey, look, hey, what do you never give up? Great. Thank you very much, and we'll uh, enjoy the rest of our time. Sounds good. If you're enjoying the Horses in Life podcast, there are many ways you can support it. You can obviously tell people about it. You can tell your friends about it. You can share it through social media or any other means. You can go to patreon.com and support it financially. There's a little more information on my website about the podcast. Also on my website, calmiddleton.com. Please be sure you sign up for my monthly newsletters through my email subscription list. Until next time, enjoy each day. Enjoy each day.